Well, good afternoon, Covenant Hope Church. My name is Nissen Matthew, and uh, I serve as one of the lay elders here in this church. And it's my privilege to preach to you from God's Word. Are you where you thought you would be 10 years ago or 20 years ago? I want to tell you, I certainly am not. I'm sure that all of you can relate when I say that even the best laid plans rarely succeed. It's rare for our 10-year or 20-year plans to happen exactly as how we planned it, no matter how foolproof we think they are. You all know the story of Titanic. When the Titanic set sail in 1912, it was described as unsinkable. No one could conceive that such a carefully built ship on a carefully planned route would be destroyed. No one could have foreseen the iceberg that destroyed the Titanic that day. In the same way, we often feel like there is an unseen hand that guides our path in our life, stopping us in our track, putting us on paths that we didn't choose for ourselves. You know, when we make plans for ourselves, the problem is not making plans. It's good that we make plans. The problem is we only plan for ourselves or our families, and that's because our vision is very small. But God sees and cares about the whole world, and his vision is enormous, and it is his hand that guides all of the things that are happening in our lives to accomplish what is best in the world. In today's text, in the book of Acts, we are going to see the futility of standing up to God's plans and the great power by which God accomplishes his plans. So if you are taking down uh, notes for the sermon, I'll give you the two points for the sermon today before we read the text. The two points of the sermon are, even in the midst of opposition, God plans, God's plans for his people will always prevail. And even in the midst of opposition, God's plans for the world will always prevail. That might have been confusing. I'll repeat that again. Even in the midst of opposition, God's plans for his people will always prevail. And even in the midst of opposition, God's plans for the world will always prevail. So let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. And we are going to start at the last verse of Acts chapter 22, which is verse 30. You can also follow along in your bulletins. I think they are on page 8 in your bulletins. So let me read that for us. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. 
Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. We'll stop there for, for now and we'll read the rest later. So if you have been following the story of the book of Acts so far, what we have seen is Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem. He's in chains. And the reason why Paul has been arrested is because he has given a defense of the gospel. And in last week's passage, he has explained how Jesus met him and converted him. But the response of the Jews hearing Paul share the gospel was they were angry. And in fact, they demanded that he must be killed. Now, last week, we were introduced to the main character in the story in our passage today, which is the Roman Tribune. And we will see what his name is. His name is Claudius Lysias. He ordered that Paul be examined by flogging. So the tribune wanted to know the reason why the Jews were so upset with Paul. And so he ordered that he be flogged. But when he learned that Paul was a Roman citizen, he became afraid because it was illegal to flog a Roman citizen. The tribune would have got into a lot of trouble for that. Now, when we come to the passage this for us today, the tribune still does not know the reason why Paul has agitated the Jews. So his plan is to convene a council of the Jewish leaders and set Paul before them to know the reason why they were accusing Paul. So Paul's chains were unbound and he was brought before this council. And this council is called the Sanhedrin. This was the highest Jewish religious court. The high priest was present. His name is Ananias. And there would have been 70 elders. Now, once the council was con uh, convened to try Paul, Paul begins with this statement that we get in verse 1. And he says that he has lived his life in good conscience before God. Now, just to clarify, we should not read Paul saying that he has lived a sinless life. 
You know, Paul has said in other places that he is very aware of his sin. Paul is simply claiming that he has lived a life of integrity. And with regard to their laws, the Jewish laws, Paul was faultless. He had not broken any one of their laws. In other words, Paul is saying that he's not guilty and that any accusations they are charging uh, against him was false. Now, upon hearing this one statement, we are told that Ananias, the high priest, becomes very angry with Paul. So angry that he commands the people standing next to Paul to strike him on his mouth. Paul replies by calling him a whitewashed wall for doing what, something that was contrary to the law, even though he sat in the seat of a judge. Paul was pointing out what a hypocrite the high priest was by doing what he just did. Now, if you remember the Gospels, this term whitewashed should bring to your memory um, something that Jesus said of the Pharisees, where Jesus was talking about those who look so beautiful on the outside, but they are like death inside. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Now, Paul, when he learns that Ananias was actually the high priest, he replies by essentially saying that he should not have done what he did. And he quotes Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, saying, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. In other words, according to God's word, God had set people in positions of authority and they were to be treated with respect, even if the people who were in those positions were wicked. You see, in contrast to the high priest, Paul is not willing to bend God's word to suit his own passions. We see Paul, even here in this response, choosing to live a life of clear conscience before God. Paul is battling the urge to lash out because they are wrong. Even in that time, he is very submissive to God's word. He does not want to dishonor the name of Christ, even when he is vulnerable and at a weak point. I want to ask you, have you ever heard the saying, preach Christ, if necessary, use words? The people who use this phrase mean that you can somehow share the gospel without words by just living a good life. Now, it's not accurate because in order to share the gospel, we must use words because the gospel is a message that must be shared with words. And the message of the gospel is this, that Christ has died in the place of sinners to satisfy the wrath of God. And Christ has risen from the dead to bring life to all those who would repent and believe in him. So as you can see, unless you preach it with words, no one will know the gospel. At the same time, if you preach Christ, but if your life does not honor Christ, in other words, if you live in a way that is contrary to what you preach, your message will be meaningless and it will be rejected by those who hear. Paul is an excellent example 
for us of what it looks like to not only proclaim the gospel boldly, but also to live in obedience to Jesus, even in the midst of adversity. That meant whatever the cost, he was willing to do only what pleases God. He teaches us this in the book of Philippians. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, the way we live our lives should represent the gospel that we preach. Our lives, if lived in obedience to Jesus, will give validity to the gospel that we preach. Without the life of obedience, we are just hypocrites and we hinder our witness of Christ. Now friends, some of us find ourselves in situations that are difficult for our faith. It may be at home or it may be at work. In all those situations, we should only seek to do what is right by God's word, even if it means that it will cost us much. What this looks like is we are not to respond evil with evil. We are not to retaliate in a way that compromises the gospel. We have no right to take up evil means to get justice, even when we are wronged. We are to submit to scriptures at all times, and we must entrust the outcome to the risen Christ, who will right all wrongs on the judgment day, if not before. You know, sometimes it's not a big problem in our lives like Paul finds himself to uh, have. Sometimes it's just the ordinary pressures that keep building up in our life that is enough for us to sin against God. I want you to ask yourself, how do you respond when you are under a lot of stress or pressure? Do you find yourself lashing out against your spouse or your children or your co-workers? Do you find yourself getting easily angry and dealing unjustly with others because you're in a stressful situation? Do you try to justify your sin by saying, I'm under pressure or I'm tired? I want to confess before you that oftentimes when I am tired, I get easily angry with people. And I'm sure that many of us do. But we must recognize that our behavior does not honor Christ. And we must ask for forgiveness from God and anyone that we may have hurt. And these little steps will help us if God ever calls us to stand in front of accusers like Paul did. Now, even though Paul did not sin before the Sanhedrin, he was not silent either. The Sanhedrin was comprised of two parties. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were those who believed in the doctrine of resurrection and the Sadducees did not believe in the doctrine of resurrection. Neither did they believe in the existence of angels or spirits. Now Paul takes note of this and he uses a wise tactic to divide the Sanhedrin. It was a stroke of genius on Paul's part. He claims that he was, that he's a Pharisee and he's the son of a Pharisee in verse six. And he goes on to say that it was with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that he was on trial. 
Now this was absolutely true. See, the greatest objection that the Jewish leaders had against Christians was that they were believing in the risen Christ, whom the Jews had killed. So the real reason why Paul was on trial was because of his faith in the risen Jesus. But Paul said it in such a way to stir up confusion in the council. He employed great wisdom and his remark caused such an uproar that some of the scribes of the Pharisees stood up and declared that he was innocent, as you can see in verse 9. So this confusion brings the trial to a standstill. It forces the Roman Tribune to take control of the situation. And what did the Roman Tribune witness? Pharisees and Sadducees violently arguing with each other, legal experts shouting at one another. And so he orders Paul to be taken back to the barracks so that he will not be torn to pieces. See, it was important that the Roman Tribune witnessed what happened in the council, the hostility and the violence that the Jews had against Paul, because as we will see, it will prove very useful in Paul's life. Now, again, remember, all of this is happening so that the tribune can discern what were the charges against Paul. And even after this council is convened, it, they seem to make no progress. In fact, if anything, the verdict was that Paul is innocent. Now, like Paul, like Jesus said, we too should be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It's important that we think about how we can respond wisely when faced with persecutors. God may give us wisdom in those moments to avoid persecution. And if he does, we must take it. We must use all resources that God has given us to further the gospel or even escape persecution as long as we do it without dishonoring Christ and as long as we do it without breaking any of God's law. Now, I don't know if you saw this, but there are many similarities between this text, the trial of Paul, and the trial of Christ before the Sanhedrin. Jesus, too, was hated by the Jews who were seeking for a way to destroy him. Jesus also was falsely accused. He was treated unlawfully by the high priest. He was also innocent, but was beaten and mocked. And even in Jesus' case, his accusers couldn't seem to agree what the real charge was against Jesus. You see, it's no accident that Paul's experience is so similar to Jesus's. After all, isn't this what Jesus meant when he said in John chapter 13, verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus had foretold that this was going to happen to Paul as well as all those who would follow him, that persecution would come on account of him. He had prepared them that they would be treated shamefully and hated as much as they hated Jesus. And so here what we see is Paul is walking in the footsteps of Jesus as he is experiencing the same hatred that they had for Jesus. Now, from the outside, all this seems very sad. God's enemies seem to be triumphing over God's people. 
And it seems like God has abandoned Paul and his ministry is coming to an end. But we should know that just as Christ's suffering was the path by which salvation would be secured for the world, so also the suffering of Paul would be the way the gospel would go to faraway places. And we are going to see that soon. God's enemies are not winning. Even though Paul was bound and at the mercy of these two powers, Jewish and Roman captors, we see that God is with him. God is with Paul. How do we see that? Well, firstly, God gives him the wisdom to answer in a shrewd way at the trial so that he could escape. But more importantly, we are told in verse 11 that Jesus himself comes and visits Paul in prison. And what does Jesus tell Paul? He tells him to have courage because he has plans for him that he will take him to Rome to proclaim the gospel. There were no dramatic prison breaks. There was no miraculous protection for Paul. Jesus only lays out the plan for Paul. You know, the Christian life is one that mirrors Jesus' own life. We walk in the path that he walked, and that path is one of suffering for the sake of the gospel. We are not promised a life of comfort and peace. In fact, we are promised the opposite. And we must be prepared for our comfort and safety to be taken away if that is what is best for the gospel. But here's the thing that Christ does promise us, that he will be with us. You know, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 26, Jesus, when he commissions the disciples, he tells them, I will be with you till the end of the age. He does not leave his disciples to suffer alone, but meets them, encourages them. And Paul is very aware of the comfort that he has received by Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, he writes, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. You see, Christ comforts his people and encourages them in the midst of their suffering. In Paul's case, the encouragement was, there is a clear plan for where his imprisonment would lead him. He might have been fearful, confused about how all this was going to happen. He might have even be tempted to think that his ministry is over, that his life is over. However, you know, for us, when we suffer, it is unlikely that Jesus is going to appear like he did to Paul and pay us a personal visit and tell us that we shouldn't be afraid. But we have God's word and we have these events recorded for us so we can understand who Christ is and about his presence in our lives. So even though you might not hear the audible voice of Christ when your co-workers laugh at you because of your faith, or when your children despise the teachings of Christ from you, or when you lose a job or friends or respect because you follow Jesus, you should still know that he is right there with you. And he's saying to you, even though you are in the pit of despair, to take courage. He's saying to you, I'm not done with you, and I have more for you to do. 
You know, to the watching world, this may not seem very much. Jesus' presence and his promise. But to us Christians, this is a great comfort for us that God of the universe is not distant from us, but he's very concerned about our suffering and that he will not abandon us and he will give us the strength to keep going. So brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged in your evangelism. You might be meeting a lot of opposition right now, but God is not done with you. Could it be that he's preparing you for more witness of the gospel? If you are alive, God has a plan for you. As one author puts it, God's servants are immortal until their work is done. You know, the promise is not that we will be kept safe, but that God will fulfill the plans for the gospel he has for us. So if you feel like all your current evangelistic efforts are leading nowhere, and that all that you're facing right now is rejection, don't give up. The Lord will provide opportunities for you if you want to serve him. You know, a few months ago, Benji Epen, our Benji in our church, was praying for opportunities to share the gospel with someone but was not finding any open doors. And then one day a man walks into our church who does not speak English very well. But he was very hungry to learn about Christ. He was from Kerala and Benji was from Kerala. And Benji was one of the few people in our church who could understand his language and communicate the gospel clearly to him. And I sat with both of them, watching them study the Bible together, and I was encouraged to see all the experience that Benji had, his language, his culture. All of that was a preparation for that moment when Benji would meet this man and share the gospel clearly in his own language. And I was encouraged to see how the Lord answered his prayer in his life. And so friends, we can and should pray that the Lord will use us. He delights to answer these prayers. Now Paul had to stand before the Sanhedrin council, as terrifying as that is, but that's not the end of the story. It is just a preparation for him to stand before the Roman authorities. God had a plan for Paul's life God was not done with Paul and Paul will stand in three more trials. He will endure two years of imprisonment and he will take a very deadly trip before he reaches Rome. The road ahead is hard, but isn't it reassuring that it's not random, that it's not uncertain, but all of this is part of God's plan. Let's look secondly at, our, at the second point that God's plan for the world will prevail. And let's read verse 12 to 35. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. 
Now the son of Paul's sister heard of this ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said to, said to him, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be, but do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for them, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one you have informed me of these things. Sorry, would someone be able to give me a bulletin? All right, verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So Paul has been promised by Jesus that he will take the gospel to Rome. But it's not exactly clear at that point how this was going to happen. But notice immediately after Jesus promises, there is a great threat to Paul's life. Jews are conspiring to kill Paul secretly. It seems like the chief priests and the council are in on it too. They plan to lie and manipulate the tribune so that Paul will be delivered and he can be killed. However, their dangerous schemes amount to nothing because Paul's nephew hears about it and Paul is able to communicate to the tribune through the centurion about this plan and the tribune makes arrangement for Paul to be transported to Felix, the governor. Talk about coincidence. By the slimmest of chance, it so happened that Paul's nephew hears about this secret plan among the Jewish leaders. And on top of that, it so happens that the Roman centurion actually listens to Paul. 
And it so happens that the Tribune believes this young man's report. What are the odds? Turns out the odds are very high in Paul's favor because as we saw earlier, God has no intention of letting Paul die before he has fulfilled his purpose. And again, we see the unseen hand of God at work, don't we? This is what we call God's sovereignty. In other words, God is controlling everything. He controls people, situations, circumstances to do what is best, not just for Paul, but for the whole world. And what is best for the whole world? It is that Paul would take the gospel to Rome, which is the end of the earth. You know, in God's sovereignty, what seemed like an opposition to the gospel was actually an opportunity for the gospel. Did you notice the irony in this passage? You know, the very plan of the Jews to kill Paul becomes the catalyst for Paul to take the gospel to Rome. You see, if it weren't for these Jews plotting to kill Paul, there would be no reason for Paul to leave Jerusalem. There would be no reason for the tribune to allow him to go to Felix, who is a higher official in the Roman government. You see what God is doing. In his rule, he is thwarting the schemes of his enemies who th thought that they were putting an end to the spread of the gospel. It's, it's I I ironical that the Jews who were opposed to seeing the gospel go to the nations. In fact, we are told in the early chapter, that is why they get angry with Paul. Unknowingly, they become the means by which the gospel would go to Rome. You know, as we read the story, we are reminded of Psalm chapter two, verse one to four. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You see, time and time again, throughout Israel's history, nations have, who have set themselves against God have only seen their plans frustrated. If anyone should, should know that it is pointless to plot against God and his people, it should be the Jews. You know, friends, it's tempting to envy the prosperity of the wicked in the world. You know, when we look at how the wicked get what they want by lying, stealing, cheating, manipulating others, it's tempting to want to be like them. The world sometimes even rewards this kind of wicked behavior. We might be tempted to turn against God and his people. But friends, we should know that God will not let them get away. Even if they seem to succeed right now, they will not get away on the judgment day, which is coming soon. You see, from a limited human perspective, it seems like they are prospering while they are standing in opposition to God. But we know from scripture that God will frustrate their attempts to oppose him. You know, someday I think we are all going to be in heaven looking at the plans of people who are opposed to Jesus and we will be able to see clearly how Jesus turns it all on its head. Let me encourage you, stand firm in doing what is right. Be honest, 
Turn away from sin. Preach the gospel. Persevere in trusting Christ because he will be the one that wins in the end. Notice the way that God takes Paul out of Jerusalem. In God's sovereign plan, Paul exits Jerusalem in style. Did you notice the security detail that was assigned to Paul? 470 soldiers. Were 470 soldiers really necessary to protect one man and deliver him to Felix? Paul had the protection of a huge section of the Roman army to ensure his safe passage to Felix. And where is Paul at the end of this whole passage? We find him guarded in Herod's praetorium, which is his really expensive palace. You see, Paul leaves Jerusalem more like a king than like a criminal. Can anyone have planned this better than God? Paul, a prisoner of Christ, escorted by the great might of the Roman army for what? To deliver the gospel to the Roman officials. You can trace the fingerprints of God all over the events of this story. And then in verse 26 to 30, when we read the letter that the Roman Tribune writes to Felix, to explain the situation, we can't help but smile. You know, just by the way, one of the ways you can tell what is the main point of a text is by noticing the repeated word. So if the author keeps repeating a word, he is trying to emphasize what the main point is. Do you notice what is the most repeated word in the Tribune's letter to Felix? The most repeated word is the letter I. This man was full of himself. Now to be clear, he is right in many things. He did rescue Paul. He gave him special treatment. He brought him before the Sanhedrin. He's the one who learned about the char charges that were not validated. He foiled the plot to kill Paul. He's the one who sent him to Felix. He ordered the accusers to meet and, uh, with Felix to present their case. So there is a lot of credit that he deserves. But at the same time, it is hard to miss that he has actually manipulated the facts to present himself in a favorable light. He does not mention that he was about to flog a Roman citizen for which he would have been in great trouble. You see, according to the Tribune, he gave all the credit for Paul's rescue to who? To himself. But what the Tribune did not realize was that Christ was at work all along. In the Tribune's mind, Paul's life was in his hands. But we know, as we carefully read this passage, that the Tribune's life is in the hands of the risen Jesus, who was using him to accomplish his purpose. And here again, we see God's sovereignty. But now it extends even to the hearts of rulers. No matter how rich or influential or powerful someone is, their lives are in God's control. This is what Proverbs 21.1 tells us. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. The tribune has no idea 
that God is using him to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Perhaps the only reason why he is in this position is for this job, to deliver Paul safely to Felix. God is using the influence of this man to make sure that his gospel purposes will be accomplished. Friends, even today, Jesus is at work in the same way, orchestrating even the smallest details of our lives for his gospel purpose. Nothing happens in our lives by accident. So consider why you are really in Dubai. Now from a human perspective, you might say it is to find a job or to study or to be with family. But after reading this passage, how would you answer that question again? I want to say you may be here so that you will hear the gospel and be saved. I want to say that you may be here because you can be part of a healthy church and can grow in your faith in Christ. You may be at the place that you are in, whether it's at your work or your school or where you live, because Jesus wants to save those who are right near you right now. Don't mistake the things that happen to you. Don't think that they are just coincidences or chance events. God is behind every event that brought you here today. And praise God for that. Now I want to say, if you are here and you haven't repented and trusted in Jesus as your savior, well, after reading this passage, I am so glad that you are here. I want you to know that the Jesus we are reading about is not a story in an ancient book that has no relevance in our lives. No, Jesus is actually raised from the dead. And what that means is he is actually alive right now. And if we believe all that we are reading in the book of Acts, Jesus is controlling all things so that people will hear the gospel and believe. Now you may think that you are actually in control of your lives and that you like the freedom to reject Jesus. But if there's anything you want to take away from this passage, it is this that Christ is powerful and it is foolish to stand opposed to him. See, the fact that you are here in this room right now is Jesus's mercy to you. He is giving you an opportunity to repent and trust in him. We know there is going to come a day when he will return and he will judge all those who do not believe in him and he will save all those who do. But today, don't miss the opportunity to turn to Christ and believe in him for your salvation. Let me say that again, turn to him today. He promises to use his great power to save you. You know, oftentimes we don't know why things happen in our lives. God does not always give us that information. But if you choose to follow Jesus, your life may look like chaos, kind of like Paul's life. But know this, God is in complete control of every event that takes place. Now, it's easy for us to read this and think that God is always going to use his power to deliver his people from death or suffering, to provide them with comfort and safety. But it is helpful to compare this story with the story of Christ. 
both Paul and Jesus found themselves at the mercy of a Roman official. Paul had the Tribune, Jesus had Pontius Pilate. Both the Roman men witnessed Jewish hostility. Both men knew Jesus and Paul were innocent. Both men had the power to save these people. Yet Pilate publicly washes his hands and delivers Jesus over to death. But this is not because Pilate was more cowardly or wicked than this tribune. It was simply this, that it was God's plan. In Paul's case, preserving his life was the means by which the gospel would go to the nations. In Jesus' case, if he did not die, there would be no way for sinful men and women to be saved from the wrath of God. There would be no good news to share. So we see that our safety and comfort is not the point. Our lives are to be spent in the spread of the good news of Jesus. And that means we might need to lose our comfort, security, and even our own lives. I want to ask you, how does that idea that God is in complete control of your life, that he is directing all events in your life to accomplish his purpose, how does that make you feel? Perhaps it makes you feel small. Perhaps it makes you feel out of control. Maybe it upsets you. But brothers and sisters, we should ask the question, this question. Why is God revealing this to us about himself? It is to encourage us. We are small. We are powerless in the grand scheme of things. Yet, God chooses to use us. So, you might feel like you're not accomplishing much. But I hope this is encouraging for you to know that God of the universe is working in your life to accomplish his purpose. In January 1956, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries landed on a beach in Ecuador near the Hurani people. They had been making contact with this, with this people group for months and they thought that there was some openness to building a friendship there. So they had been planning a visit to these people for a long time to share the gospel with them and they really believed that God was making a way for them to do that. Unfortunately, the very first day they arrived there, they were ambushed by 10 men armed with spears who killed them immediately. They did not even have the chance to tell them about the gospel of Jesus. A few years later, Jim's wife and daughter and many others returned to this people, the Hurani people, and shared the gospel with them and saw many of them saved. They even repented of the murder of Jim and his friends and they in turn shared the gospel with others. The entire tribe was transformed by what God had ordained through the death of Jim and his friends. See, this episode that we're reading about in Paul's life should be an encouragement to our church as we remember that God is in control even when we feel weak and vulnerable. God has every moment, situation, and person in the palm of his hands. So we have nothing to fear. We can rest confident in the knowledge that God will accomplish his purpose in our lives no matter what. At the end of the day, enemies of Christ will not prevail. 
only Jesus will have the final victory. To close, I want to read you these lines from William Cooper's hymn that he wrote in 1774. He says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright design and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Let's pray.